My name is Freddie. I'm the Young Adults Pastor here, and it is my joy to be with you this evening. Uh, like David mentioned, we were away Thursday, Friday, and then today for the Pastor Elder Retreat. Uh, and Mark wisely delegated to the young guy, because young guys have more energy. So I did play soccer last night, but I am full of vigor and happy to be here as we jump into Colossians 1. We're going to be in Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. So if you have a Bible, feel free to turn there. The denominational situation in Western countries is quite complicated. In the 1900s, there was a movement called liberalism that split a lot of denominations, one of which was the Presbyterian Church. And PCA would be the more conservative side. PCUSA would be the more liberal side. And PCUSA, a couple years ago, made the news because there was a group of PCUSA ministers that were working together to create a new hymn book. And we, if you have, don't know this, you're going to learn today, hymns and songs are powerful ways to teach theology. We believe things that we sing. And even if you don't believe it, if you sing it enough, you will. And they, uh, they sent a message to the authors of a hymn called In Christ Alone, a modern hymn, uh, and they wanted to change a line. So we're going to put on the screen behind you the two versions of the lyrics. So the song, it goes like this, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ I live. That's the normal song. PCUSA wanted to change it. And they don't want to change everything. They just want to change one little line. Till on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. And this made the news, of course. It was on Huffington Post, right? So not even just Christian people, regular people in the world. They're like, why are Christians so weird about the, the words? They, they fight over semantics and wordsmithing. What's the big deal here? You're talking about the love of God. You're talking about sin in the edited version. It has all the right pieces. But I think we have to ask the question, though, what exactly did Jesus accomplish on the cross? Yes, the love of God was magnified, but was there anything else? Why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to die on a cross? I think these are profound questions and they bring us back to the scriptures where we learn that humans, all of us, are born at enmity with God. We are far from God and in need of forgiveness of sins. So God must do something to deal with that. Colossians 1, the section we're going to be reading today, is all about who Jesus is and what he has done to fix that situation. If you walk away with nothing else, I hope you learn today that only the Son can save sinners. Only the Son can save sinners. We're going to look at three things. The identity of the Son, the work of the Son, and the response to the Son. So finally, Colossians 1, 15 to 19, our first point, the identity of the Son. It says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This he, this him, this first person pronoun, who is the him? 
If you go back one verse, it is the beloved son. We're introduced to this character at the very beginning of Colossians. But then again in verse 13, the kingdom of the beloved son. And Paul draws a distinction. Paul, who wrote Colossians, draws a distinction between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of the beloved son. And he teaches us something very important that Mark covered a little bit last week, that this beloved son, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, from verse 14. And then the rest of our passage today is describing that. This redemption, this forgiveness of sins, this beloved son, what do we need to know about these, this person and what he did? So first, we need to know who Jesus is. The beloved son, or Jesus, is a unique person. Paul starts this section by teaching us very clearly who Jesus is. There's a couple of things we can mention. I'm going to focus on four. The first is that Jesus is the image of God. If you remember a few weeks ago, I had preached on, on the image of God, and I talked about the ways that we are like God. So there are things in us that point to who God is, that reflect who God is. So when we read this, is Jesus the same? He's, he's trying to reflect God, but is himself not God? That's the question we have to ask. And I, I, don't, I think Jesus is actually God. And as we walk through the passage, 15, 16, 17, 18, it starts to build where the passage makes it very clear that Jesus isn't like God. Jesus isn't a reflection of God. Jesus is actually God. So first here in verse 15, we're told Jesus is the image of God. I wanna take you to a different passage, 1 Timothy 1.17, that describes what God is like. God is, or to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever, amen. So when we speak of the Christian God, we are speaking of an immortal being who is spiritual, non-physical, cannot die, exists outside of time. How on earth can you see that God if he is immaterial, eternal, how on earth are we gonna know who that God is like? That God must make himself known to us. And what Paul is saying is Jesus is that. Jesus is God in the flesh. God makes himself known to people by, in the form of Jesus, teaching us what he's like. If God is the king of the ages, and if God is saying he deserves honor and glory, we have to know who this God is. So Jesus enters the picture and reveals God to us. If you've ever read a book and you flip to the back, maybe you've never done this, but you flip to the back and they have that little about me section about the author, right? Mark has, has recommended a couple of great books in the, in the last sermon series. And if you read any of them, so let's say Strange New World and Carl Truman, never heard of the guy, seems smart, got recommended by my pastor, sure, I'll buy it. You flip to the last page on the inside of the dust sleeve, there's an about, about me section, about the author. And it'll tell you who Carl is, where he went to school, where he serves, other works that he's written. We know nothing about the author unless he reveals himself to us. And in today's world, that's how they reveal themselves, through the, the book cover or through a publisher putting on promotional events. Jesus is the about me section of God. A God that we cannot see and we cannot know unless he sends himself out to us. And Jesus is that, a physical, living, seeing person. And Paul is saying, this Jesus, this is why he's such a big deal. God is making himself known to us. Jesus is the image of God. But Paul keeps going. Jesus is the creator of all things, verse 16. Right? We know that there was at one point nothing, the universe had a beginning, 
and then there was everything. And Paul is saying here in Colossians that Jesus is the creator of all things. There, there are millions of galaxies above us and eight billion and counting people around us and millions and millions of insects and little critters below us. The world is vast. My, my son, my oldest son, to almost two and a half years, he's well into the speaking phase. And as we do anything, he's always asking questions about everything he can see. What this, this, this. He always wants to know the name of things. And dragonflies, birdies, puppies, trucks, tractors, it, it doesn't matter what it is, he always wants to know. And my hope is that as we teach him all of these things, we would always remind him, this dragonfly, God made it. And this puppy, God made that too. And that tractor, well, God didn't make the tractor, but God made the man who designed the tractor or the woman who designed the tractor. God is ultimately the creator of all things. We want our little boy to grow up knowing this to be true because scripture teaches us this, that Jesus is the creator of all things. Verse 17, Jesus is the sustainer of all things. The world does not run on natural law alone. If you read through the scriptures, you're gonna find interesting passages like Psalm 104 that teach us that God is actively involved in even the most minute details of creation. Psalm 104 is a little bit long, so I just picked a handful of verses. So starting in verse 10, you, speaking about God, you make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. The picture that Psalm 104 gives us is not of a God who is distant and uninterested in creation. It is a God who watches a bird sing, who fills fountains with water and then sends it out to feed a donkey that no one even owns. Psalm 104 paints a picture of a God who actively sustains all of creation. And Paul is saying that's actually true of Jesus as well. You see, what Paul is doing in our, in our section of scripture is he's taking attributes of God and he's applying them to Jesus, which to us seems, like, seems normal, right? We're, we're Christians, so that's, that's how we speak of Jesus. He is God. But to the world that Paul lived in, you didn't do that. You didn't talk about God in such a way and compare him to, to mere people. So what he's doing here is he's making abundantly clear that the things that are true of God are also true of Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is also God. Well, there's one more, one more in our passage. Verse 18, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. And this is a funny expression, right? Because you're like, well, Jesus died in his human self, but God cannot die. So Jesus rose again from the dead. God raised him. Scriptures teach us that. So Jesus, I guess, is the firstborn from the dead, but firstborn, I guess that implies there's more than just the one. And that's exactly what this little phrase is about. See, in Jesus' resurrection, we have hope, not just that Jesus defeated death, but that people who trust in Jesus will also be able to defeat death. The idea of the firstborn from the dead implies that there will be a second and a third and a fourth, millions and billions of people. Anyone who puts their faith in Jesus will be raised from the dead. The rest of the New Testament carries this idea because it was revolutionary. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20. If in, or in fact, not if in fact, it is a statement of reality. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So kind of a slightly different image, not about more than one child, but first fruits, right? So the first ripe fruit, but if it's a healthy tree, there's gonna be a lot more ripe fruit. The first, first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, right? Which is a New Testament phrase. They don't even like saying death because they're like, it's so impermanent because of Christ that we just call it sleep. Those who have fallen asleep, verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul takes three attributes of God, that God is a creator, God is a sustainer, God is a redeemer, and applies them to Jesus. And then most importantly, he lifts up the idea of the resurrection and says, Jesus came back from the dead, and he's not the only one who's gonna do it. This Jesus is different than anyone you have ever seen or heard about or learned about. In, in theological phrases, Jesus is both, both man and God. Uh, the word that theologians will use is called the hypostatic union. He is two in one. And Christians are uh, very well known for our bad math because we believe in a three-in-one God and a two-in-one Jesus, right? And these are mysteries that are hard to comprehend, but they are critical to the Christian faith because what we believe about Jesus is that he was truly man. Like, he, he was flesh. He got tired, like David Atkins playing soccer, he needed a break. But also, he resurrected from the dead. He did miracles. He was filled by the Spirit. He was also God. You know, like, how can you be both man and God at the same time? I, I don't comprehend it. I'm, I don't comprehend it either, but I know it to be true because if it's not true, then Scripture is untrue. And Scripture clearly teaches us Jesus was fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man. The identity of Jesus is critical for a life of faith. Before Paul can get to talking about the work of the Son, he has to tell you about the identity of the Son. And if this Jesus is one of a kind, is unique in the way that I'm explaining him, then I think we have to come to, to a specific response. I think we owe this Jesus worship. A unique identity implies a unique response. We don't worship other people because they're just like us. We see their flaws. But if there was a person who was also God, who sustained all of creation, who created everything, who redeemed sinful people, who resurrected from the dead and offered that resurrection to anyone who had faith in him, that person, they certainly would deserve worship. And worship is a term that we throw around the church, right? We, we use it because we, we, we assume everyone thinks what we mean when we say it. When I say worship, I'm talking about a response. I'm talking about obedience. I'm talking about praise. That is our response to who Jesus is. There's a pastor in the States, John, or retired pastor now, John Piper, who wrote a book many, many years ago called Let the Nations Be Glad about the work of missions, and he did a wonderful job of framing the idea of missions together with worship. Worship is what I'm talking about right now. He said this, missions are not the ultimate goal of the church. So we support missionaries all over the world. And according to John Piper, missions is not the ultimate goal. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. We could say missions is for now, worship is forever. So when, when we see this Jesus with a unique identity, 
I think we ought to be compelled to a unique response to come and worship Jesus. Uh, if you don't know what that means, or you don't know what that looks like for you, uh, it simply is an invitation to follow. And today could be the very first day that you choose to follow Jesus. The identity of the Son compels a unique response. Secondly, the work of the Son. So we're going to go to verse 20, Colossians 1. So I'll, I'll skip back a half a line there for 19. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So Jesus being fully God, so and through him, through this fully God Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, people like you and me, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We've already talked about Jesus' unique identity. He's one of a kind. And his one of a kindness enables to him, him to do a one of a kind work. What is that one of a kind work? There's two specific phrases that come up in our passage. The first one is reconcile. It shows up in verse 20 and again in verse 22. And then make peace in verse 20. This reconciliation is painted as a all of creation type of event. So Jesus isn't just interested in you getting right with him. He's interested in you getting right with him and you getting right with each other and you getting right with the world. The, the implications of the reconciliation that he offers is all things. It's a cosmic event. Jesus came to make a better world. The next question, of course, is how? How are you gonna make a better world, Jesus? And Jesus, or Paul teaches us, Jesus makes peace by the blood of his cross. What an odd phrase. What an, a uniquely Christian phrase. A phrase that is offensive to the modern ear. There was a C.S. Lewis, well-known name. He wrote a bunch of books that are Christian allegory. And some of these books were made into movies. Right? And when the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe first came out, there was a, a British humanist, secular humanist, not a religious person, who wrote a review about that movie, Polly Toynbee. And this is what she said. Of all the elements of Christianity, the most repugnant is the notion of the Christ who took our sins upon himself and sacrificed his body in agony to save our souls. Did we ask him to? People hear this idea of this cosmic reconciliation through a sacrificial death, and they kind of scoff at it. Or worse, they mock it, because it, it does not make sense. Modern man scoffs at the idea of a substitutionary death. But that is what Scripture teaches us. This passage in Colossians is one of the clearest in the New Testament that teaches us the work of Christ. What did Jesus come to do? The, the title for this sermon is Why the Cross? We wear them, we tattoo them on ourselves. Why is it so important? Why did Jesus have to die? And this passage tells us he came to do this to reconcile in his body of flesh by his death. All of these pieces have to be included. What the PCUSA ministers didn't understand by swapping out the idea of wrath, they imply that Jesus didn't have to die. He simply could have been here. He could have been a really nice guy who said really nice things and people follow him and make a religion, I guess. But Jesus didn't give us that option. 
His followers did not believe that about him. Scripture makes it clear that Jesus had to die. Why did he have to die? Verse 14, which we covered last week, ties this death to forgiveness of sins. So Jesus redeems us for the forgiveness of our sins. Uh, in, again, in theological language, we call this penal substitutionary atonement. The idea that Jesus died so that sinners could live. And the concept is quite simple. It, I think it's offensive to people in, in today's world, but it's, it's very, very much, or very, it is really quite simple. Uh, you have humanity, as described in Colossians 1, that we are hostile, engaged in evil deeds, right? People are bad. So people have what we would call sin guilt. There is something wrong with them and God will hold them to account. So people all have guilt. Jesus is perfect. He has no guilt. Jesus has righteousness or what we could simply call merit to make it a little bit easier. So Jesus has merit and we have guilt. And God in his wisdom has allowed there to be a switch. We call the great exchange where sinful people get the merit that Christ deserves and perfect Jesus gets the guilt that sinful people have earned. And what does a sinful person who has rejected God, who is hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, alienated from God, what does that person deserve? According to the scriptures, Romans 6.23, that person deserves death. So someone has to die. So then Jesus does. And verse 22 makes it clear. In, he reconciles us in his body of flesh by his death. When we share the gospel with people, this is why we talk about this reality. It has become in vogue, I think, to evangelize through relationship. I think it's a necessary thing in our current cultural moment. But in those relationships, we still have to say something about Jesus something about his identity, something about his work, something about a response. And when we talk about the work of Christ, do we talk about his sacrificial death? I think we should. I'm gonna share with you the, way, the simplest and clearest way I've heard to share the gospel. So it, there's four phrases you need. This comes from a, a pastor in the States named Greg Gilbert. God, man, Christ, response. I'll put it behind you on the screen or behind me on the screen. The Christian gospel is that there is a God. Our passage in Colossians opened with that idea. There is a God who is the creator, who is the sustainer, who is the redeemer. Jesus is that God. There is a God who is up there and that God made everything around you. And that God wants to be in relationship with people like you and me. But man in his wickedness has rebelled against God, starting with Adam and Eve and continuing with everyone that you've ever met, that you've ever known. People do what they want. In the language of Colossians 1, they're hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, alienated from God. People have a problem. God is gonna do something about it though. And when we speak about Christ, what is it that he did? Well, Christ took your guilt and gave you his merit and exchanges them. The work of Christ is that he dies so that you don't have to. He raises to new life to give you eternal life. And ultimately, we have to respond if this story is true, that we owe God something we can never pay, we have a guilt that we can never pay, and he offers merit that we cannot earn, we have to respond, we have to take it. God, man, Christ response. These four phrases are the gospel. And Colossians 1 makes it so clear that the Christ part 
of the gospel, the dying on the cross, the exchanging merit for guilt was not possible if Jesus did not die. It is an essential part of the Christian gospel, of the Christian message. When we speak of the work of the Son then, what is the appropriate response? In one sense, I think if you're not a Christian, the appropriate response is to accept the offer. He died for the forgiveness of sins. He offers you merit you cannot earn, so accept it. But what if you're already a Christian, as many of you in here would be? What if you're already a Christian and you kind of know the gospel and you kind of understood it, and as you're hearing this, you're thinking, oh my goodness, I owed God perfect personal obedience, and instead I was alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Oh my goodness, he did something for me that I could never do for myself. How, how would I respond to that? I think there are a lot of responses, but the very first one would be the simplest thing. And the simplest thing is to say, thank you. Thanksgiving. It, it seems so simple, but what would you say to someone who saved you? Thank you. Regardless of the severity of the threat, my wife despises spiders, which I'm sure there are people in the room that would agree. These arachnids, right? These foul three-legged or eight-legged creatures, not three-legged, that would make sense. They would never move. That would actually be good because then they couldn't come at you. Uh, these eight-legged creatures, my wife hates them. And one of, very early on in our marriage, I learned that they die on sight. There is a kill, an active kill order on any spider within the premises of the property where we reside. And I personally do not hold that conviction, but my wife does. And in an effort to love my wife, I now kill spiders on sight, just step on them. And then you're like, ah, that's gross. You have to wipe off your hand or foot or whatever. But I kill all spiders. And my wife always says thank you for removing the threat. She needed to be delivered from imminent danger or imminent danger as she saw it. A spider, a creepy little crawly thing that you can crush so easily is nothing in comparison to sin. The way scripture describes sin as lawlessness or idolatry it describes it as a soul-corrupting force that destroys you from the inside out. There is nothing you can do to deliver yourself from sin. You need someone to rescue you. You can't smush it yourself. And what Jesus has done through his fleshy body by his death is rescue you from sin and death. Jesus delivers us from something much uglier than creepy crawlies. So how should we respond? Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. In our prayer, as we're walking around, as you leave the building, just say, thank you, Jesus. I, could, I would not be here today without you. And then one step further, I think Christians in general should probably just be thankful people. There is nothing that could happen to you that should be able to change your thankfulness to who God is and what he has done for you. Regardless of your circumstances, nothing that you are facing is as bad as eternal death and destruction. And that is what Jesus rescued you from. So say, say thank you. Third, our response to the son. We have the identity of the son, unique identity that enables him to do a unique work. And now we must respond. Colossians 1.23, Jesus uh, he, sorry, he has reconciled you. I'm gonna go back one verse. He has now reconciled you in the body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. And now verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, 
stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So this passage makes it very clear. Paul wrote this book. But there's a few quick questions that we have to address before we get to the main thing I wanna talk about. I wanna talk about the continuing the faith, but there's two quick things. The first one is that verse 23 starts with a question. If, right, and we would inflect our voice. It doesn't say it very clearly there with the question mark, but it, it is a challenge, right? If you continue in the faith. And you're like, if, if, like this is a pass fail type of thing. Like, can I not continue in the faith? But the, the grammar of the passage makes it clear that this is a rhetorical question that anticipates a positive or affirmative response. The actual word that gets used makes that clear. But even more than that, we, we speak like this in English. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, you show up to my house, it's dinner time, and you're like, are we gonna eat? If you sit down. I do not expect you in that moment to turn around and leave, right? Uh, if you sit down is a conditional statement, but it is a conditional statement that expects an affirmative or positive response. You are going to sit down and then we are going to eat. Or you can drive if you get in the car. You're gonna get in the car, we're going somewhere. So the if isn't about possibilities, it is a necessary reality, it's a necessary response. This passage does not teach us that people will fall away from the faith, that people will not continue. It reminds us that continuing is a necessary aspect of the Christian faith. We'll get to a little bit more about that in a moment. But I wanna remind you, I wanna encourage you that we have covered this in the last couple of years as we preach through John, as we preach through Philippians, that the New Testament intends to give us great assurance of salvation. That no matter how much we mess up, no matter how dumb we may be, no matter how often we fall into sin, God is working by his spirit in our hearts to dramatically transform us. We're not hostile and alienated and engaged in evil deeds only. Now we're being renewed by the spirit. And in the language of Philippians 1.6, God will finish the work he started. Or in the language of John 10, 26 and 28, he is holding you in his hand the way we would hold the frog that we caught at the pond. Right? It's not getting out. Jesus has you, God has you. He will finish the work he started. But there's another problematic phrase, I think, in this passage, the proclaimed in all creation. And skeptics, people who reject Christianity and people who reject the authority of the scripture will jump on a line like this to talk about the untrustworthiness of scripture. They'll read that and they'll say, well, this is a plainly a lie. Like Paul himself in the New Testament wrote about going to Spain. He wanted to go to Spain and then died in his Roman imprisonment. So he never, he never made it. So when Paul says here, uh, the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation, that is a lie. The Bible is a lie. You guys are all losers. Skeptics will take this and they will run with it. But I think there's a very simple explanation for this. In a word, hyperbole. Right, hyperbole is a grammatical term. It is an, an exaggeration for dramatic effect. It's not intended to be taken literally, but it's intended to communicate something to grab your attention. For example, I destroyed that barbecue chicken pizza last night. What do you think I did to that pizza? Obviously, I lit it on fire and threw it out. No, I ate it. That's, that's what I mean when I say destroyed. Or yesterday, I'm playing soccer against David Atkins. I mix him because he's old and I'm young, and I shoot a shot, and I say, I tattooed that ball. It, it went in. I did not take out an ink pen and start scribbling my name on there. I hit it with my foot and it went in the goal, right? 
these phrases we would just call hyperbole. It's an, it's an exaggerated verb meant to communicate something truthful. The truthfulness is that the gospel is going forth. And that is the story in the New Testament that Christian people, as soon as they realized, oh my goodness, Jesus actually rose from the dead, they could not stop talking about it. And they told every single person, and as they were kicked out of their families, as they were thrown in prison, eventually fed to lions, they did not stop talking about Jesus. So when Paul says, this has been proclaimed in all creation, he's simply saying, the gospel is going forward. You can't stop this thing. He's exaggerating for dramatic effect, but the point he's trying to make it is that the gospel is going and the gospel is being offered to all people. At the very beginning of Colossians in verse six, he says, it is bearing fruit in the whole world. Paul wants to use big language because he's attempting to inspire hope in people like you and me. Nothing is gonna stop this message from going forward. But I wanna focus here in these last few minutes on one particular phrase from Colossians 1.23. Continue in the faith. What does this mean? This is a, a statement about the nature of Christian faith. Earlier, I kind of hinted at it, that Christian faith in its nature is by necessity a continuous action. The, the New Testament gives us a picture of faith that begins in a moment. There is some moment where a person says, oh, I'm gonna worship Jesus, or I will follow Jesus. Jesus invites us to follow him or worship him. So there's a moment where someone decides, I will follow Jesus, I will worship Jesus. But then there's the journey of following Jesus. There's the continual experience of worshiping Jesus. So it is a moment in time and a continuous process. We celebrate conversion. We celebrate baptism, these points in times. But we also celebrate a person being a faithful Christian for 50 years. And the New Testament paints us a picture of faith that is, is dynamic. I want Paul, in his first missionary journey, traveled with a man named Barnabas. Barnabas, when he met, went to a city called Antioch to describe or to go and encourage brand new Christians, I want you to hear what he said to them. When he, Barnabas, when he came to, came to the city called Antioch and saw the grace of God, there was a whole bunch of people there who became Christians, Gentile people who had never even heard the name of Jesus, didn't know there was one God. And they hear the gospel and they're like, we believe. When he saw the grace of God, he was glad. That is an appropriate response to seeing people be saved from death and given eternal life. He was glad and he exhorted them. So he was glad that they, they had the moment. They were saved. They professed faith in Christ. They are worshiping Jesus. But there's something else. He exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. You see, Barnabas is a legitimate Christian, a faithful Christian, and he understands that Christian life is the steadfastness, this continuing thing. Around Northview, we talk about faith with, with three Ps. If you've never heard this before, if you haven't been to a baptism class uh, in, in re the recent past, you might not have heard these, but there, there are three Ps that describe this process that I'm talking about, this continuing in the faith. There is profession. There is something you must believe about Jesus. There are non-essentials to the faith. In Colossians 1, you have to believe that he, in his fleshy body, in his death, he reconciled you by his blood that he offers forgiveness of sins. There are essential beliefs about Jesus, that he's also God, right? He is the sustainer of the universe. He's the creator of the universe. 
There are things we must profess to be true. But more than that, there is a, a, a practice. There is something that changes in us. If we profess things to be true about Jesus, we start to obey Jesus. We listen to the scriptures. We listen to the things he says. We obey his commands. In the language of Colossians 1, last week, Mark covered this, the idea of, of bearing fruit. That's a continual process. The New Testament will use that phrase to dis, as a colorful illustration for describing obedience. Obedience can't be faked very long, right? You can tell pretty fast if a tree is gonna give fruit. It either does or it doesn't. If I see flowers, fruit is coming. And Christian life is like that. It starts with a profession and it leads into greater and greater fruit. Giving thanks is another fruit. In verse 22, I skipped over it to get to it here. The, Jesus' purpose in saving us is to present us holy and blameless. So Christian life involves a holy life, a blameless life, which we know that we don't all live up to, but it is something that we pursue. There is a profession and a practice. And lastly, there is a perseverance. That's our third P, where it is perseverance is simply a persistent pattern of profession and of practice. Right? We don't celebrate someone becoming a Christian and then being faithful for five years. We're happy they're faithful for five years, but we celebrate when they're faithful their entire life. Right? There, there's a great line in, in 1 Corinthians 9 where it, scripture uses the image of, of running the race. And this line is so profound because it is a great illustration for Christian life. When someone in your family runs one of those 10Ks and with no training, because that's how we always run them, we don't celebrate and take the pictures at the beginning of the race, right? We might take a picture at home before the race when they look nice still, but you know, we don't drive five kilometers in and say, hey, good enough. Let's, let's take the picture, let's go home. We'll get a medal on the way out, right? We, we celebrate when they get to the finish line. We celebrate when they finish the race. This passage is trying to capture that same idea. Christian life is a continuing life. Faith is a continual process. We respond to the sun in perseverance. I want you to leave here today with this idea that Christian life is by necessity a continual process that you are living out. And if you are going to persevere, if you're going to continue in the faith, there's a couple things that have to be true. You have to know the hope. Uh, and I, I say this knowing that hope is what makes us stable and steadfast, right? Verse 23 describes Christian people who continue in the faith as stable and steadfast. What makes us stable and steadfast? It's knowing the hope. And I think for us, we, go, we have to go one step even deeper. Where how is it that you get there? So I'm, okay, this idea of this hope, this Jesus who is God and who rescued me from my sin and he died on the cross and offers forgiveness of sins. Okay, so I know some stuff. But how, like, at, at what point, or how do I build up a, a hopefulness that would make me steadfast? I think that's a question that we all struggle with. And the simple answer is you have to know the story of the Bible. I had a great experience this past week where I was doing an intake interview for summer camp, so, or day camps. We, we had that video before the service where we were trying to recruit volunteers and uh, a lovely lady, stepped up. She said, hey, I'm away these two weeks, but I can serve this one week. I know it's only one week, but I want to help. Of course, come help. We did the interview and we talked about the gospel. We talked about her testimony, talked about her family, where she'd served before, where she hoped to serve. We had like normal conversation relevant to day camps. 
But as we talked a little longer and she shared her story, we, you know, the conversation shifted to current events and politics and the economic situation we find ourselves in. And we started to get a little bit somber, right? We're like, ah, oh, man, like, I guess, I guess Jesus is coming back tomorrow because things are looking pretty bad. And in the moment, I felt that Holy Spirit tug, right? When, when you kind of feel that, like, I should say something. And sometimes we don't. But in this moment, I stepped up and I said, you know what? Uh, I, th- life is pretty bleak sometimes. I'm not gonna lie to you. Like, I, I, you look at the news and it's hard not to feel depressed. I'm like, but I like to read the Bible before I read the news because when I read the scripture, I'm reminded of the story. And the story is that Jesus is king. And like every, every person that has ever oppressed you or challenged you or has challenged the faith, uh, every corrupt politician, every radical activist, like they're gonna be dust. And Jesus will still be worshiped. So in a thousand years, no one will remember every bad guy that you can think of in your head right now. But Jesus will still be worshiped, either by us in you heavens and you earth, or by other faithful Christians a thousand years down the road, because Jesus resurrected. He's not going anywhere. He is king. And this story is what helps us be steadfast. It's what helps us persevere in the faith. The Bible's story has to be known by us. But you might be thinking, like, I don't know the Bible super well, so like, I'm not gonna like, jump to that right away. So what's the first step? What's the first step for me to start to know that story that I can just meditate on so that I don't feel low when I read the news or when I'm going through suffering? In a phrase, cling to the sun. When, when we talk about Christian life as this worship of Jesus, as this following, trusting, obeying Jesus, I think we could make it more simple even, think like Jesus, talk like Jesus, act like Jesus. I I think that there's a picture that I can give you that will help you think of Christian life in like the mundane day-to-day. I was at Costco a couple months ago and I ran into uh, someone who comes to Northview uh, and we did the parent shuffle, right? Where you're like, I'm in a rush because I have 35 minutes before my kid goes bananas. So we waved and kept going. And I ran into her again, myself, my wife, my two boys. We're at checkout and she's there with her son and we're in parallel lines and she's doing the like, oh no, can't find her Costco card. She, was, she had it when she walked in, lost it somewhere in the store. And I was like, I knew her, so I didn't feel like I was like doing anything wrong. So I'm like, I'll just jump in line with her, go through. I scanned my card and then I started to walk away. And the clerk acted like I had murdered someone. They're like, sir, freeze. And I was like, what? And they're like, you have to stay with the stuff. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll stay with the stuff. And they're like, uh, the member card that gets scanned, that same member has to pay. And I was like, for $400 of groceries that aren't mine? He's like, what? I'm like, nothing, nothing, nothing. Uh, sure. And I, I stood there with her and I had to stay there. And I kind of stood like right next to her as she like types in her pin and I'm like, try not to look. And then she paid and left. But this idea, right, of this, like, how close should we walk with Jesus? When we think of Christian life, when we think of, like, I'm in, I've, I've made the profession, I, I want to I continue. Like, how close do we have to be? Well, if you think of the profession of faith as being, like, the moment you walk in the door, you, you're next to Jesus, and he shows the card, and you get into Costco, and you have access to all this stuff. And a lot of Christians will then kind of start wandering the aisles. And they're like, no, 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 like I believe in Jesus. He's somewhere in here. I'll find him eventually. You know, we'll get right before the end. But Christian life isn't that at all. 
Like when you get to the checkout, you actually can't check out if you are not with Jesus. So in the time between the walking in the store and the checking out, you should cling to Jesus. You should walk right next to him. My kid walks next to me by holding on to the cart. We should be that close to Jesus. Christian life, this continuing in the faith, is that. So if you're gonna cling to Jesus, very quickly here, in the last 30 seconds, I think the simplest way is simply reading your Bible. I know that we get to that all the time and we parrot it over and over and over again, but there is no better way to spend time with Jesus than to read his story and encounter him every single day. Today is July 1st, which means that all of you are currently on pace for the July version of the reading plan. If you are not currently in a reading plan, I happily invite you to join mine. You can join online through the website or you can take a card home with you tonight. But every single one of us should be clinging to, hang on to the grocery cart, walk next to Jesus. If you want genuine saving faith, you have to cling to the son. Our response to the son should be to cling to him. We see the identity of the son. We see the work of the son. We see our proper response to the son. Colossians 1 is about the hope we have in Jesus. This unique person accomplished a unique work, a unique work and demands a unique response from us. Only the Son can save sinners. I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna invite the worship team up. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word, Lord, uh, that from it we were able to learn tonight who Jesus is and what he accomplished. But more than that, Father, I pray that by your spirit, you would put a huge burden on our hearts to cling to the Son. Lord, do, do not let anyone leave this building without feeling burdened to spend time with you. We know you, we met you at some point, we professed faith, but more than that, Father, help us practice and help us persevere. Father, our hope here at Northview is that we would train deeply rooted disciples, people that finish the race. So by your spirit, Lord, bless everything that happens here and help your people grow. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.